Uh, well, I want to add my uh, welcome, my greeting uh, to you, especially those of you who are new uh, with us. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors and part of our preaching team, and um, I'm just really glad uh, that you're here with us as we continue this third week in our series, Truth We Can Touch. Um, I- I'm curious, when you have times of discouragement, when you have times that you just feel like, ah, I'm in a funk, right? Like all of us have ups and downs. We have moments when things are great. We have moments when things are bad. Uh, Some of us have real kind of volatile swings just by personality and kind of how we are. Others of us are a little more even keeled. But when you get in these moments when you're starting to get discouraged, when you're starting to feel down, what do you do? Uh, Seth and I recorded a podcast this week about uh, keeping Christ in Christmas, and not in some culture war kind of way, uh, but just the idea that, that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And if that's true, then he's acquainted with the griefs and the discouragements that we feel even during Christmas time, right? There's a lot of, uh, you know, holly jolly stuff, but it can be pretty discouraging too. What do you do when you're discouraged, when you're in the valley? Well, what I do is I I do a lot of verbal processing with people. I talk with friends and I talk with Molly. I uh, talk with my counselor. I usually go to our elders and say, hey, would you pray for me? And let's talk about just kind of how I'm feeling and how I'm doing. Another thing I try to do is I try to listen to music, try to sing. Sometimes just I can sing my way into a happier heart. Prayer, spending time with the Lord. But I came across something this week that I had never done to try to encourage myself when I'm discouraged and down. And my bet would be, I'd be shocked if there's anyone in this room that has ever done what I'm about to tell you. I've never done it. My guess is none of us have ever done it. And it's a story that I I came across uh, when reading a little bit about Martin Luther. Martin Luther was the great reformer, the Protestant reformer, who um, didn't set out to start a new branch of Christianity. He just started out to try to reform the church that he was part of, the Roman Catholic Church. And so um, he began to do that and faced lots of opposition as he did so. And so uh, there was lots of times when people thought he was a heretic, when people thought he was a false teacher. And there was one particular moment when he was trying to translate the Bible into German so that everyday people could have the Bible in their own language, which was like not something you were supposed to do. And so he's kind of off in this castle in hiding. Uh, People are like would love to kill him. He's discouraged, he's depressed, his church has turned their back on him. How did he fight for joy in the midst of that situation? Well, he did something that I've never done, and he did something I bet you've never done. As he was going through this dark night of the soul, those who were there with him could overhear him yelling something. And here's what he was yelling. I am baptized. I am baptized. Anyone ever done that? Right on your way home after like a really terrible day, you're driving home in the car. I am baptized. Have you tried this strategy? I had not tried this strategy. And, and it struck me, especially in a week where this is the Advent week about joy, that, that maybe one of the ways that we have forgotten, one of the ways that we've lost touch with in the Christian tradition and even in an understanding of the Scriptures is to lean into and to leverage our baptism for the sake of fighting for joy. I am baptized. That's who I am. 
That's what's true. That's what matters. I am baptized. So today we're going to talk about baptism, what it is and why it matters. This is part of this series we're doing, Truth We Can Touch. Uh, Normally we're teaching through books of the Bible, but during Advent season we usually kind of pause and look at some different themes. And the themes this year all kind of come out of this doctrine of the incarnation, that that God came in the flesh. That's the incarnation, that Jesus uh, took on flesh and dwelt among us, that He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so if, if God came near, and he didn't come near just as ideas, he didn't come near just as principles, but he came near as a person. He came near in a physical body. What we're doing then is reflecting on these physical ways that we actually worship him. We looked last week at assembly, that we physically gather together, and that there's something that happens when we're together, uh, when we're hearing each other's voices and feeling each other's hugs and staring face to face at one another, not in some disembodied technology kind of way, but that we're actually connected, that God does something in the process of that. Today we're looking at, at baptism. Next week, we're looking at communion. And I want to just give credit where credit's due. Uh, we didn't make up the name of this series. We stole it. And a lot of the uh, stuff that has helped me this week and in preparing for next week uh, is from this book. This is a book by Tim Chester. It's called Truth We Can Touch. Really clever, huh? Aren't we clever? Truth We Can Touch, How Baptism and Communion Shape Our Lives. And I love it. It's about 150 pages long, which is like, no book should be longer than that, really. So it's, it's, uh, it's very good, very helpful. I actually started reading it last year when we were doing online services because I was really wrestling through our elders. We were wrestling through can we do communion online? And I thought, you know what? For a church that practices communion every week, I have done very little theological reflection on communion. And that's what got me onto this book. And I just found it really, really helpful and thought that it would uh, help us reflect on the embodied physical nature of our faith. So uh, that's what we're going to do. So today, we're really going to try to answer three questions. We're going to ask, what is baptism? Why does it matter? And now what? So what is baptism? Why does it matter? And now what? So let's pray together. Uh, Father, I come to you uh, in weakness, aware of my need to be reminded of who I am in Christ, aware that that's what we need. So God, we need to hear your voice. And so we ask you to send your spirit Come, Holy Spirit, speak, guide us, lead us into truth, convict us of sin, encourage our discouraged hearts, invite us into your family, remind us of who we are. We pray it in Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, so the first question we're going to look at here is what is baptism? What is baptism. And I'll give you a definition that actually I wrote. I didn't take this from the book. I made this up myself. Um, But here, here you go. Baptism is the physical enactment of the promise that Jesus' death and resurrection have dealt with the problem of sin and judgment. Baptism is the physical enactment of the promise that Jesus' death and resurrection have dealt with the problem of sin and judgment. I want to just kind of break that definition down a little bit. So first, it's a physical enactment. Baptism uh, is usually an immersion. That's the way it is most commonly practiced, is an immersion. And in fact, the Greek word baptisma means to plunge or to immerse. 
Uh, and it always involves water, right? There's always a physical expression, a physical enactment of water. It's often immersion, uh, but throughout the history of the church, baptism has been done a number of different ways. Sometimes it's involved sprinkling, where water is sprinkled on somebody, and that's an appropriate image because in Ezekiel 36, God talks about how He's going to sprinkle clean water on us and give us new hearts, and so that's an appropriate kind of image. Uh, there's another kind of approach to baptism that has been kind of pouring over and, uh, and, and that's something the church has done at different points because it, it symbolizes this pouring out of the Spirit, this pouring out of the cleansing power of God. And so that's been an appropriate image. For us at Redemption Gateway, what we normally do, you know, since we're basically in Queen Creek, is we have a, a horse trough, right? So we fill up the horse trough, we warm it up, and uh, generally what we do is we do baptism by immersion. But we have had times where we've done the pour over. We've had times where we've had people who've said, hey, for physical reasons and whatever, I just, I, I can't really get down into that. And we'll have them stand there and we'll go like Super Bowl winning Gatorade, you know, pour, pour over kind of a thing. And it's, it's great. It's just as good. But get this, in all baptisms, it involves water. It's always physical. It's not just thinking about water. It's, it's involving a physical thing. Well, why? Because this water and this baptism is, is a symbol, but it's a powerful and a transformative symbol. In many ways, you could say it's a lot like a wedding ring. I've done tons of weddings over the years as a pastor, and I have kind of a template that I'll give to couples because even though people have been to weddings, they don't usually think about what are all the elements that could be in a wedding. And so I'll give it to them and say, hey, whatever you want to do here, we can move stuff around, we can add, we can subtract, you know. And so people get really creative and they have, you know, here's the time where we're going to have unity candle or no, we're going to have unity wine. No, we're going to have unity sand. No, we're going to have a unity rope, right? And we're going to have all these kind of interesting things. And sometimes people do music and sometimes people do communion and sometimes people do all these things. But you know what's been in every wedding I've ever done? May I have the rings. May I have the rings. That's always part of it. Why? Because rings are a significant symbol. They are a transformative symbol. They're just a symbol, right? Does the ring make you married? No, right? Like if my ring is off and it goes onto your hand, are you suddenly married to Molly? Like, oh, what happened? No, right? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't make you married, but it reflects that you're married, right? In the same way, right? If, if you happen to trip and fall into the baptism tank. <laughs> Does that make you a Christian? No. What matters is the commitment that you've made to Christ or in a marriage to your spouse, but it's reflected in the symbol of, of the ring. On the other hand, if, if I say, hey, do you have, may I have the rings? And the best man, who's, it's always his job to have the rings, imagine the best man forgets. And he's like, I had one job, dang it, right? At that point, do we go, well, no rings, wedding's off? No. And in the same way, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're trusting in him by faith and you've put your hope in him for salvation and you've never been baptized, does that mean because you've never been baptized because you don't have the ring that you're not really a Christian? No. But the ring is an important symbol. It's powerful. It's transformative. It says something. Uh, just this week, um, I was on a Zoom call, and I, you know, I fidget with my ring a lot, and I was fidgeting with it, and it came off, and it fell off, and it went underneath my desk, like all the way up against the wall, and I could kind of see, uh-oh, 
But I'm on this call, and it's like, I can't go, excuse me a second, I'm going to crawl under the desk and get my ring. So, I, so it was there, and, and then I got you know, immersed in the conversation, and I just sort of forgot about the ring. And so then I'm in another meeting a little bit later, and I'm, feel, and I'm like, oh, wait, I forgot my ring. But it was just like a serious conversation, and same thing. I can't go, hey, time out, while I crawl under the desk, <laughs> you know? So I, I kept, but then I got home, and I went, oh, I forgot my ring. It's under the desk. And I just, A, a I was nervous that someone was going to come in and vacuum it out from under my desk and I would be, lose it. But I also was going, I don't want to say to the world that I don't have a ring. Especially because like, you could tell that I normally wear a ring, so I'd look like a creepy guy that took his ring off on purpose or something. Right? I don't want to do that. So I drove over here, you know, had to disarm the building and everything and crawl under the desk and get my ring. It's just, and you go, it's just a symbol. Yeah, but it's an important symbol. And so asking why we should get baptized is a little bit like asking, well, why should we have wedding rings? Because they're really meaningful. So baptism is the physical enactment, secondly, of the promise of the promise. Get this, the good news of Jesus, the message of Christianity is a series of promises. It's not a series of rules. It's not a series of expectations. It's not a a series of conditions. The gospel, the good news, is a series of promises that in Christ we can have forgiveness, we can have new life, we will be adopted, we will be resurrected, we will be glorified. These are the promises of God that are given to his people. Aren't those good promises? And so baptism is a picture, a physical enactment of those promises. You could picture baptism and communion, these things that we do, these symbolic pictures of our faith. These are like the, the signatures at the bottom of the contract. God has slid the contract, the covenant, across the desk and said, here, this is what I'm promising you. And as we get baptized and as we receive communion, it's like we're we're signing, say, yes, we receive it, right? The signature doesn't change the conditions of the contract. It just says, yes, I want that to apply to me. And so it's, it's, it's a physical enactment of the promise. And think about this. What do you do when you get baptized? Nothing. Nothing. It has to be done to you. Right? You can't cannonball into the pool right? and have that count. Someone else is going to stand there or kneel there, and they're going to lower you into the water, or they're going to pour it over you, and they're going to say, it's my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You can't baptize yourself. And in the same way, you can't make yourself earn the promises of God. You just receive them. So baptism is a physical enactment of of the promise. Well, what, what promise in particular? Here we go. That Jesus' death and resurrection have dealt with the problem of sin and judgment. There's a problem in our world because of our sin, and that's judgment. And Jesus' death and resurrection deal with our problem of sin and judgment. And I want to give you from the kind of whole story of the Bible how we see this. So if you look in Genesis chapter 1, God creates the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit is hovering over the face of the waters. 
And the, the, the first few verses kind of present this picture of the heavens and earth being this kind of chaotic ball of water almost. And uh, on the second day of creation, after God creates the light, uh, God creates an expanse. He separates the waters. And, and all ancient people would have viewed waters, especially like bodies of water, as chaotic, chaos, messy, disordered. And God, in the midst of the chaos, inserts an expanse. And it's out of that expanse that he then begins to fill the waters with life, that he begins to bring dry land forth and fill that dry land with life. And so God, God creates new life through the waters. Well, then we get to Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they rebel, they sin against God, uh, they disobey him, they plunge the world into sin. And it happens pretty fast. In Genesis 4, Adam and Eve's kids are murdering each other. By chapter 6, here's what it says. It says, the Lord looked at all the people and he saw that every intention of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. That's bad. So, what is God's answer to this world full of constant, unrelenting sin and selfishness and pride and arrogance and dishonoring of him? What is God's answer to that? The answer is judgment. And what form does judgment take? In a sense, what God does by sending a flood is he's in a sense uncreating the world. He is pulling out the expanse between the waters and the watery judgment, the chaos now returns and judges everything except there's one family who is saved through the waters. Noah and his family experience this ark and this ark saves them and new life and a new earth, in a sense, is reborn after the judgment of the waters. That's an interesting picture, isn't it? Well, then you get to the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, God's people have been enslaved there for hundreds of years, and uh, they cry out to God. They're oppressed. They're uh, beaten down, and they cry out to God, and God sends a deliverer, and the deliverer uh, uses a number of different things through God's power to save them, but what is the climactic moment of the Exodus? They show up at the edge of the waters, and the Spirit of God and by the way, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the word spirit and the word wind are the same word. And the wind begins to blow. The spirit begins to blow. And the waters part. And God creates an expanse between the waters. And they walk into freedom. They walk into new life. They walk into a new destiny on dry ground. And the Egyptians follow them. And the waters collapse. And they're judged. Well, then 40 years later, the people of Israel have been wandering around in the desert. They haven't gone into their new promised land yet. They haven't believed God. And so the first generation has died off and the next generation has arisen. And they're there and they're standing there on the edge of the Jordan River. And on the other side is Canaan, this promised land that God has given them. And only when they step into the water does the wind again begin to blow and the waters part and a new people of God is born into a new land through the waters. 
So the identity of the people of God throughout the entire Old Testament is we are a people, the Jews, who go through the water. And so what happens is, uh, at that point, no Jews ever get baptized because they're already part of the people who've gone through the water. But Gentiles, if you're not a Jew and you say, I want to start to follow Yahweh, I want to start to obey the one true God, in order to do that, well, hey, you got to go through the waters. And so Gentiles would go through a process of baptism. So uh, John the Baptist, who we read about in the early parts of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, he, he doesn't invent baptism, but John the Baptist does something unthinkable. If you read the early stories of John the Baptist, you're going, what, why is everyone so intrigued with this guy? Here's why they're so intrigued. Because John isn't just baptizing Gentiles. He's baptizing Jews. And he's saying all of us are under God's judgment. All of us are sinners in need of forgiveness. All of us need to repent, right? He baptized them with a baptism of repentance. And so this is mind-blowing because what John's saying is, no, 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 the Jews aren't the good people and the Gentiles are the bad people. We all deserve to be judged. And as he's baptizing people on the banks of the Jordan River, steps forth Jesus, a sinless man, a holy man, Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus says, hey, I want to get in the waters. Jesus is the one who John himself said, I'm not worthy to untie your sandals. Have you ever wondered why Jesus got baptized? Well, it wasn't because he was a sinner, but it was because he was saying judgment happens through the water and new life is born through the water and I'm going to go into the water and be covered by the judgment of God and I'm going to come up in a way that will bring anyone who believes in me new life. That's the picture of this. Here's what Tim Chester says in the book. He says, in his baptism, Jesus identifies with his people and expresses his intent to take the judgment we deserve. Jesus is declaring, I'm with you. In the Jordan River, Jesus was symbolically baptized into our sins. On the cross, he is actually and really baptized into our sins. He is immersed into our sin, completely covered. He dies and is buried. He bears our judgment in full. And on the third day, he rises again. He passes through judgment to give us new life. And 23 years ago, I stood on the edge of the waters. And like Noah, and like Moses, and like Joshua, and like Jesus, I stepped into the water and I became part of this story of sinners passing through the waters as a picture of new life. Let me just ask you, have you passed through the water? Have you passed through the water? See, this is what baptism is. So many of us, if we think about baptism at all, it's like this check that we, you know, it's like a, a checkbox we've hit like years ago. End of, end of story. I know I'm supposed to get baptized. Check. Did it. But he, here's what baptism is. Baptism means that, that sin and judgment are gone. 
Jesus pictures it in his baptism. He fulfills it on the cross, and we are part of that story. That's what baptism is. It's a physical enactment of a promise that Jesus' death and resurrection dealt with our problem of sin and judgment. So the second question then is, okay, well, why does it matter? What, is, what does it do for us? What does baptism accomplish uh, other than kind of doing this physical enactment? And it's interesting because if you read the rest of the New Testament, what you find is that especially the Apostle Paul is constantly referring back to baptism. He's saying, here's how you should live. Why? Because you're baptized. So here's a couple of things, two things that, that explain why baptism matters. So number one, uh, baptism means we are one in Christ. Baptism means we are one in Christ. Now, this is significant because the New Testament is written to people who didn't get along. You had Jews and you had Gentiles. They hated each other. You had Jews, you had Greeks. They were separated in every conceivable way. Even in the temple, they were separated. And now, because of Jesus, they're coming together. And so here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For, in other words, here's how you know you're one. For, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. He says something similar in Galatians 3, 3.26. He says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. Now, get, get this. He's not saying that you no longer are male or female. He's not saying that your ethnic distinctions are obliterated. What he's saying is your ethnic superiority is obliterated. Your superiority on the basis of your genders obliterated or the basis of your economic status because that's no longer the basis of your, of your, your standing. What's the basis of your standing? You're one. Why? Because you were baptized. Now, I just think that's so interesting because a lot of us would go, okay, we're one because we all believe in Jesus. But the way that Paul talks about those who believe in Jesus is they're baptized. And it's interesting, even if you go, all, I mean, Christianity looks different all over the world, right? There's different kinds of music and there's different kinds of buildings they gather and there's different kinds of practices and there's different kinds of secondary and tertiary beliefs and there's all these things. But we're one. Why are we one? Because every Christian everywhere gets baptized. Baptism means we're one in Christ. Here's the second thing baptism means, is baptism means we are new in Christ. This is Paul's point in Romans 6. That's the passage we read at the beginning of our time here. It's uh, Romans chapter 6. There were some people who were saying, well, you know what? If, uh, if God gives grace when we sin, then maybe, here's an idea, let's do a lot of sinning so that God has a lot of opportunity to give us grace. And Paul goes, hey, uh, Class, good idea, bad idea. Sin a lot so you get a lot more grace. What does he say? He says, by no means. Why? He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? You go, whoa, 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 what do you mean I died to sin? I feel like sin's alive in me all the time. How can you say I died to sin? Here's what he says, verse four. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul is saying that baptism is a tomb and a womb. Baptism is simultaneously a funeral service for a person who no longer exists and a naming ceremony for a new creation in Christ. This is amazing. Paul's saying, no, we don't go on to continue to sin because that you, the you that was obsessed with your reputation, the you that was obsessed with getting what you want, the you that was obsessed with having power and money and success and control, the you that was obsessed with what everybody thought of you, the you that just lived for you, gone. That you is dead, why? Because Jesus took that you to the cross and it was pictured in your baptism. And now you've been raised. Now you're new. Now you're forgiven. Now you're adopted. Now you're welcomed. Now you're clean. Listen, the, the, the challenge of the Christian life is to become who we already are. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, you used to be an in-Adam person, doing everything that just came natural to you, and now you're an in Christ person, and you've been given the Spirit, and now you're doing what is supernatural. It, baptism means we're new. So, last question then. Now what? Okay, this is what baptism means, and this is why it matters. N- now what? what? What does that mean for us? And I I have in mind a number of different groups of people here in this room that I, that I want to kind of consider the implications together about this, okay? So now what? Well, well, what about those of you who are not followers of Jesus? Right, some of you, that, that describes you. Like, if you were to just describe yourself, you'd go, yeah, I'm not really a follower of Jesus. Some of you would say, I'm curious about it. Like, I'm here because I'm, I'm kind of open, and I'm wondering, and what is this about, really? And is, is this maybe have more answers than I previously thought? And you're, you're curious. And I, I hope that even just in kind of hearing the, the, the picture, the imagery of baptism, you realize this is not just some random thing that a bunch of church people made up to be weird. This is actually a beautiful picture of how God judges our sin and makes us new, right? And so, and so maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, but, but you're kind of curious about this. Maybe some of you, you're, you're not a follower of Christ and you don't even want to be here. You're like already counting down the minutes, and now you're like, and he's talking about me now, which that's even weirder. <laughs> and, and listen, if that's you, I'm glad you're here. I really am. I'm sorry that you're not having more fun, but, but I'm glad you're here. But, but here's the thing. If you're not a follower of Jesus, here's what you need to know. The, 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 baptism is communicating two things to you, a warning and an invitation. There's a warning here. And the warning is, unless Jesus absorbs your judgment for your sin, you will. And the waters of God's judgment on sin will be poured out. And either Jesus took them, or you will. Because if you don't have the Spirit of God, then, then you're like the people in Genesis 6. 
where God sees. And every intention of the thoughts of our hearts without Christ is only evil. Continue to go, well, I'm not evil. Okay, you call it evil, or you don't call it evil, God does. Because the opposite of love isn't hate, it's selfishness. And if you're living for yourself, that's evil in the eyes of God. And so baptism should be a warning to you, but it's also an invitation. It's an invitation that says you don't have to absorb your own judgment. You don't have to bear the weight of this penalty. You could turn to Christ. He's the one who welcomes you. He's the one who invites you. He's the one who says, come, let me forgive you. Let me wash you. Let me cleanse you. Let me give you new life in me. And so there's a bit of a pivot point ahead of you. Maybe today, but it's coming. If you don't follow Jesus, it's a warning and it's an invitation. Now, the second category I want to talk to are those of you who are followers of Jesus, but you haven't been baptized as a believer. And uh, the main thing I want to say to you, especially those of you who are adults in that situation, you're a follower of Jesus. You, You say, you know what? I've trusted Christ. I love Jesus. I pray to him, I take communion, I, uh, I, I try to depend on him for everything. I know that if I died right now, not because of anything I've done, but because of what he's done, I'd go to heaven. But you've never been baptized as a believer. Here's what I wanna do. I wanna get a ring on it. You're married to Jesus, let's get a ring on it. I want you to be able to celebrate with your friends and your family the reality of what Christ has already done in you. And so I want to encourage you to really strongly consider being baptized, to follow Jesus in that step of obedience, and to have this be part of your story, to have moments when you're discouraged and when you're down and when you're questioning if God really loves you and you could go, I am baptized. Let's do this. Now, I don't have anyone ready to bring out the tank right now, right? We're not doing that. But in about two months, Sunday, February 13th, we're going to have a baptism service. There's information. If you open up your program, you'll see on the far right side of that is that connection card, the part that's mostly black. You flip that over. There's a spot where if you're interested in baptism, you you can uh, indicate that. Drop that into the gray giving mailboxes that are back there by the door, and we'd love to be in touch with you. We'll send you kind of more information about what it entails. You can talk with one of our pastors. We'll help you get ready for that and prepare for that. Uh, But February 13th will be our next baptism. Uh, God willing, after that, the next baptism will be Easter. But we have a few opportunities for you to be baptized. It's time. Now, the the third category I want to talk to are those of you who are followers of Jesus and you haven't been baptized yet as a believer and you're a kid. (laughs) Praise God for what he's doing in your life. Praise God. You're trusting the Lord. That's awesome. Keep going. Keep praying. Keep depending on him. Keep walking with him. Keep seeing how he shows up and answers your prayers. But, but here's what I don't want you to do. If, if, if you're a kid, especially if you're like a kid, like not yet a teenager kid, is I don't want you to feel the pressure of this moment. Because here's, here's what I've experienced for those of you in this situation. I've talked to so many adults who come to me as an adult and they say, you know, I was baptized when I was four or five, or eight, or whatever. And I did it because I felt like I was supposed to. But I don't even really remember it. 
and now I want to get baptized again? And so one of the things we've done as an elder team here is just said, hey, as a general kind of uh, rule of thumb, we're trying to say, hey, before you're, anyone before 12, let's just not even worry about it right now. Let's let your, your life and your faith and your overall kind of maturity develop. And then as you keep following Jesus, that'll be something we can celebrate. We want to do it at such a time when, when you're like really ready to remember it, where you can look back and go, yes, that's significant. If you're a parent kind of trying to navigate that stuff, like, and you need to talk that through, we'd love to talk some of that through with you. Uh, but we don't want to put that kind of pressure on you if you're not kind of ready for that. All right, here's the, the last category, the fourth category, is I want to talk to you followers of Jesus who have been baptized. And this is the category, if I'm honest, I probably would have left out of this message if I had done it two years ago. Because in my mind, like probably a lot of your mind, the point of baptism was just do it. And then it's over. But what I'm, what I'm seeing is I look at how Paul leverages baptism. As I look at the tradition of, say, Martin Luther, I'm going, wow, this is this untapped opportunity for us to lean into it. So, so I just want to ask you, when you have moments of temptation, when you feel ashamed of yourself, when you've done it again, and you've done it bigger than you did it last time, when you feel guilty, when you feel afraid, when you're feeling despair, when you're feeling like there's no hope for you, what if you said, I'm baptized? I know the Lord loves me. I know the Lord has washed me. I know the Lord has taken the judgment for me. I know that the Lord is with me. I am baptized and I'm living a baptized life. I think the other side of that has a ton of joy and a ton of freedom, and a ton of life. Tim Chester says this, my standing before God does not depend on how I feel inside. It depends on his promise. But how do I know that I have his promise? Because there was a day when I was wet. Let's pray. God, thank you for the promises of Jesus. Thank you for the hope of Jesus. Thank you for the freedom of the gospel. And God, we as your people, thank you for these physical pictures. God, we're thankful for these moments that we can remember when our bodies were wet, when our hands were raised in the air, when our smile was bright, And like Jesus being baptized, we heard by the Spirit, this is my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. And so God, thank you that that's who we are, not because we've done anything right, not because we've earned it, not because we've been good somehow, but because of your sheer grace. God, could that be our identity and our hope and our answer when we know that we don't deserve it. God, thank you also for communion. Thanks for the opportunity to celebrate it now. And thank you that even in this moment, you are here with us. We pray it in Christ's name.